0: All of deep learning is optimizing something. And what engineers do, if they're smart, is think about what am I really trying to optimize? What's the loss function? What goes in, goes out?
1: Obviously, now that I know a lot about machine intelligence, I know it is very different from human intelligence, maybe inspired, but still it is not the same.
2: So it may take time for the science of deep learning to catch up to the engineering of deep learning, it could be like decades, right?
3: This is Brain Inspired. Hey everyone, it's Paul. This is the fourth uh, installment of the Neuromatch um, Academy panels and the first of the uh, three deep learning modules. So with me today is Amita Kapoor from the University of Delhi, Lyle Ungar from uh, University of Pennsylvania, and Surya Ganguli from Stanford University. The topics uh, this week were uh, the basics of deep learning, linear uh, deep learning, And PyTorch, which I (laughs) mistakenly call TensorFlow, a uh, forgivable offense, I hope. Uh, Multilayer perceptrons, optimization and regularization. And we mostly focus uh, on optimization and regularization uh, in in the bulk of our conversation. We talk about the relation between optimization and regularization, how necessary regularization is and uh, will be. Whether optimization is the right way to think about learning in deep nets, given the role of learning trajectories. Uh, we also talk about paying for sterility, magic, and lots more, and it all goes by way too fast. So I link to the information for Amita, Lyle, and Surya in the show notes at braininspired.co podcast NMA four. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the discussion. Amita, Lyle, Surya, thanks for being with me here. Uh, I thought um, what we could do is just go around. You guys could give a brief introduc- introduction uh, of who you are and and what you do. But then I thought it'd be fun if uh, to get to know each other. If you guys started with um, telling a story about an early question you had early in your research career before you guys are the uh, became the experts that you are now, and then uh, a question that is interesting you now. Uh, now that you are the expert that you are, and and why you're interested in that, so Amita, should we start with you?
1: Yes, definitely. So uh, when I started with my career, very initial stages, and I was studying and I was teaching at the same time, my questions were more related to intelligence. So like you know, what is intelligence? How do we say one person is more intelligent than other? Shouldn't everyone be equally intelligent? And I would say at that time, I used to believe everyone is equally intelligent, but perhaps there are different dimensions where they you know, express their intelligence. So someone experts in, in uh, art, someone in maths, and so on. And I guess that was one of the reasons why I was, I was also interested in artificial intelligence, to understand intelligence better, even maybe natural intelligence. And obviously, now that I know a lot about machine intelligence, I know it is very different from human intelligence. Maybe inspired, but still it is not the same it's very different, and now the questions are basically how to go towards you know achieving an intelligence which can be similar, more towards you know going towards AGI, more towards understanding the natural intelligence by means of artificial intelligence. These are the queries which I have Rao.
3: you were, you started off uh, interested in neural networks and perceptrons, and also reading Isaac Asimov. And you were a start you were like a Trekkie, right? Is that the? Yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yes. So almost from the childhood, Star Trek is my favorite serial Even now. I will see it for hours and hours, repeat all the episodes. <laughs> so yes, so definitely. D-
3: I'm sorry. I'm just going to jump in with questions because that's what this is about anyway. But uh, you, you mentioned AGI. So uh, you think AGI is a thing?
1: Right now, not. But I do believe sometime, somewhere, we should be able to get it. With the present technology, definitely not.
3: What do you mean by AGI, though? What, like, what is it?
1: Uh, what I would say is AGI is some, some sort of an intelligence, which is more general in the nature. It can, it can apply its intelligence not to just one domain or few domains, but mm. to multiple domains. Right. And for each domain, it should not require 20 years of learning, as we do.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: So that is what I would call as a AGI. Right. So I do hope we do reach it and hopefully in our lifetimes, that would be great. So let's see.
3: And and should we apply Asimov's, uh, what the three? Three laws, of robotics. three laws. The three laws. Yeah. Three laws should should we of apply robotics?
1: Those? Oh yes, they should be there. How we still have to think about them. There are ways and there are things that one has to decide how to go about it. But I guess that, some some form of three laws of robotics, not exactly the same, but some form of three laws of robotics is needed. Especially when we talk about ethical AI, we have to have, like, you know, bias, discriminations, these things should not go. And misuse of AI is always a possibility so that we should try and do something about it so that it doesn't happen.
3: Very good. Lyle, you, you played with early perceptrons too, if I'm not mistaken.
0: So i have my whole career modeled the world, complex nonlinear phenomena. I started actually as a chemical engineer, and I realized that we wrote down these incredibly complicated chemical reaction equations, some of which pieces were true, like masses conserved, and some of which were just made up. And it turns out you can throw neural nets inside of partial differential equations. Um, Oddly enough, 30 years later, this has now become popular again to do physics-constrained neural nets. And in some sense, I spent my whole career, I've modeled genomics, I've modeled economics, people, I do psychology mostly now. And I think for me, the thing that keeps fascinating is, what can we build in? Some things are easy invariants, translational, rotational, some things, conservation of mass, conservation of energy, some things are harder things to build in. How do you build in linguistic structure? I do natural language processing. What are the universals across English or across all languages you could build in? So I think for me, the fascination has always been, we're not able to write down complete models, even for a widely studied language like English, the largest grammar is six volumes long. It's terribly incomplete. It's just missing lots of stuff, lots of stuff that Google Translate knows with Transformers and modern deep learning. So I think the question is always, what do you build in? What do you learn? How do you structure it? And I think that's been the case, and is still the case for deep learning.
3: Being a uh, chemical engineer in your background, what do you think of applied physicists?
0: Um, they're smart. I was an applied physicist. I mean, there's lots of people <laughs> that are well trained doing things. It's. I think. Why do you ask? I mean, some of the people I, I, I have. I
3: might get. A, I might. I might start a little beef between you. You and Syria. I, I wasn't sure.
0: <laughs> the interesting thing is I know lots of ex-physicists. I worked with a psychology PhD student who is was an undergrad degree in physics. I see a lot of people trained in physics with really good training, and they're feeling that physics is not going anywhere interestingly fast enough, and they've shifted into biology or computer science where there seems to be more action for smart mathematical people to go. So that's sort of my take on applied physics is it's awesome training but it's a little scary to me how many ex physicists I know.
3: Surya, before you start, how? D- 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 sorry, Amita, did you want to jump in?
1: No, I, I didn't was know just, if you had some. Okay. No, 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 no. Thanks. Continue, please. Yeah.
3: Okay. So, Surya, that it, it is an interesting thing. I think I often complain on the podcast or note. Let's say note instead of complain, <laughs> mostly because. Uh, uh, the complaint part is just jealousy that, you know, there, there's a lot of physicists uh, coming into neuroscience, right? But that's because there really aren't neuroscientists. There's neuroscience now, which is now made up of people from all different sciences. Um, what do you think about Lyle's contention that uh, physics is dead? Is, I'm paraphrasing. Physics is dead. Let's do something uh, more, you know, complicated, more complex, like biology and, and neuroscience. Is that, does that ring true to you?
2: Yeah, I think yes and no. So first of all, Lyle, I'm glad you like applied physicists because I happen to be one.
3: (laughs) I figured that out
0: sort of halfway through there. And by the way, physics is dead. Long live physics.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, you know, I went through that path, actually. I I did my PhD, not even in applied physics. I did my PhD in string theory. And, and, uh, you know, I had a lot of fun doing that. If I had to do it over again, I I would still do a PhD in string theory. It It was fun. But Eventually, I wanted to connect to nature, like really understand how nature works. And I think it was hard. It was very hard to do that with string theory. And so I, I switched fields and I took my first course in neuroscience um, at the end of my Ph.D. It was taught by um, excellent professors at Berkeley like Bruno Olshausen uh, Frederick Tudison, Yang Tan. And I, I just fell in love with it. And, and I realized I could use my physics skills to analyze complex systems in biology. and. Um, Yeah, I think a lot of physicists do go through that. Like, I think physics is fantastic training. And then they want to try other things afterwards. And for me, I think it's more power to them. I don't think physics is dead. I think there's very interesting stuff going on in condensed matter physics, uh, quantum entanglement, like, you know, so forth. There's there's actually a merger between neuroscience and physics now, too, because there are things called neural quantum states, where they try to approximate many-body quantum wave functions using neural network parameterizations. And they're doing really, really well. So I, I think, like, uh, I actually have fun working in neuroscience, physics, and machine learning. And and I, I guess that's typically what applied physicists do. They kind of walk, work broadly in many fields uh, using their training, just like applied mathematicians.
1: I would like to add here, even my PhD was in photonics. So, you know, it's know. kind of physics-based. And I would say it's not dead in that sense, because even doing during my uh, PhD, I was thinking about implementing optical neural networks and how to go about that. But yes, Uh, Pure physics requires a lot of experimentation and a lot of infrastructure, which may not be possible for many of us unless we have big grants, big universities.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so I have collaborators, like, you know, related to that, like with Benjamin Lev, a colleague of mine in applied physics. The only reason we started working together on this particular project is because we're both colleagues in the same department. But he can build um, uh, neural networks out of atoms and photons, right? So the the atomic spins are... uh, like the neurons and they exchange photons, those like the synapses. And we showed that like...
1: The whole quantum neural networks is exactly that.
2: Exactly, yeah. yeah. So we showed that a particular cavity quantum electrodynamics system could implement a hot fuel model. And it's particular intrinsic quantum dynamics is better than that of the hot fuel model in terms of maximizing memory storage capabilities. So, you know, just, I think it's just fun to be open-minded to these collaborations. Like I can't run an experimental uh, physics lab because I don't have the expertise and that's a lot of grant money to raise, but it's good to have friends who can, right? And and fostering those collaborations is, I think, a lot of
0: fun. So this is super cool. So as a more applied guy trying to model the world, when am I going to get a hold of some of these um, quantum computers, quantum neural nets that actually outperform my old-fashioned GPUs and TPUs I'm using
3: now? Well, this is something Amita, Amita you and Syria have in common, that that you think that the the future of deep learning is, is um, sort of dependent on quantum computing. Is that right?
1: Uh, I think quantum computing will help, definitely. It's like the work that I have already done in quantum computers with the IBM machines. I feel, yes, quantum computing has a lot of scope, but yes, it is limited. Again, as Lyle said, hardware is not available to everyone. Even the cloud com- uh, computers, they are like uh, quantum computers, they are hard to get by. You have to have credits and all that stuff. But it will come, hopefully, the most.
3: Lyle, is that something that you are just chomping at the bit for? Or, I mean, how much do you think that it would... Is that something you're actively waiting for? Is quantum computing to help your deep learning algorithms?
0: Completely not. I I have spent my whole career trying to avoid hardware. I'm interested in how do people think, how do genes work, but... Every decade, I have to learn to run my stuff on a new hardware system. I've used Cybers and Craze. I now use GPUs because, hey, they're way cheaper and way faster. And so, sure, will I like quantum computing? No, it's going to be annoying. I'm going to have to redo my algorithms and recode things for a different computing hardware structure. And will I do? Of course I will. You know, If I can do something that allows me to be 100 times faster, I can do better modeling. But in some sense, for me, this is all just an unfortunate consequence of, of <laughs> progress. I'm much, and I, I do think that when my contributions are much more, how can you build in knowledge of the world, which also gives you your 100-fold or 1,000-fold faster improvement, so far it's 50, well, no, so far the hardware guys are winning. I mean, <laughs> convolutional neural is- nets were a huge leap, one might almost say a quantum leap, but let's be honest, the real benefits in the last 30 years has just been way faster convention, conventional silicon-based old-fashioned computing with different vector architectures. But I'm happy when these guys give me the computers, I'm going to use them. What am I going to say? You know, No, I don't want to be faster. I don't want quantum
4: computing.
3: But this is, the, this is the lifelong learning problem in, in deep learning. Go, sorry, Surya, go ahead.
2: Well, I just want to say, like, I, I'm, I'm not all in the quantum thing, for sure. I, I think it's important to note that human intelligence doesn't, in any essential way, rely on quantum mechanics, uh, right. despite Penrose's assertions and so forth, right? I mean, yeah, we operate at less like temperature, so We're, we don't have quantum coherent dynamics and so forth. We're basically classical computers. And, um, you know, if you think about order of magnitude discrepancies between the capabilities of humans and machines, right? Energy expenditure is one of those. Uh, you know, Our brain spends 20 watts, supercomputers uh, operate at the megawatt uh, power consumption range and they can't do what humans can do, right? So if you think about why that is, it may actually be that digital computing itself is the fundamental mistake that we made, right? We rely on computations with the intermediate steps of computation, i.e. bit flips and transistors are extremely fast and extremely reliable. But we play a huge energetic cost for that because the laws of thermodynamics demand that every fast, reliable bit flip costs a lot of joules of energy, right? Biology instead is slow. It's noisy. It's very, very parallel. Every intermediate step of the computation looks a bit chaotic and noisy, but the final answer is just good enough. And so by avoiding fast, reliable, intermediate steps, I think that's where we got the energy efficiency in biology, And we've already gone down the wrong route in digital technology if our goal is energy-efficient AI. So I think analog computing, if we can harness that and power that and create error-corrective analog computing, that might be the better way to go to get energy-efficient AI than quantum computing.
3: But Lyle still has to learn it.
0: Well, the trick is we really don't know how to code it. So I I do think that not just Lyle has to learn it, but a lot of people that it's not obvious that the same algorithms and coding things that work well in the current infrastructure, which we've optimized over 50 years, are gonna work as well. So there, I think it's gonna raise a bunch of interesting issues. Now, I at the yeah. macro level, so I worked at Google, which is getting close to having as much GPU power as it has human power in terms of compute power. If you look at the overall memory capacity of its computers versus its people, um, they've at the macro level, of course machines fail all the time. If you look at the early machines, my university Penn had something called ENIAC, when one of the little components failed, a vacuum tube, the whole thing went down. Google and anybody, Baidu, whoever you like, always machines failing. So at the macro level, we've learned to route around and deal with this constant failure. At the micro level, of course, they're still using very conventional digital computers, and they don't allow failures. So, so I, I do think it's maybe going to trickle down, as Surya wants, and we will get more and more fault tolerant, um, because it's been forced already at the high level.
3: Uh, Amita, so TensorFlow, I believe, is one of the topics of the week at uh, NeuroMatch, and Lyle was just talking about how he... you know. Um, doesn't doesn't look forward to learning new hardware systems, but this is applicable to software as well. And I remember one of my uh, grudges that, I, you know, a, a real point of friction for me was was I would finally get used to coding in a certain language and then something else would come in and, and I would have to update it. Yeah. Uh, updates uh, yeah and so tensorflow right now i suppose is the language du jour and amita you write textbooks and all sorts of things about tensorflow so um is tensorflow here to stay or or when is the next thing gonna come through people used to talk about there was a graduate student who said that uh matlab would um consume python you know so what you know is everyone who's learning TensorFlow, is that going to be with them for their life? Or eventually, we're going to have to learn analog computing with a different uh, scripting language, etc.
1: Here, I would say any deep learning framework is going to live as long as there are contributors, contributors working on it, as long as there are people improving it. So right now, TensorFlow is very actively maintained, very actively updated. And you know all the new models are very actively added into it. That makes our work easier as a deep learning scientist. Right. So TensorFlow is here, but if they stop doing it, there will be someone else. There was a time when we had CAFE. Everyone was using CAFE, right? So it simply depends on how, how many people are updating it, uh, regularly maintaining it and contributing to it. That's a major and factor.
0: PyTorch at the moment is at least as widely used. I think it's actually gradually more widely used than TensorFlow. At some level, those differences are so small that the, once you learn the concepts, whether you're doing PyTorch yeah. or TensorFlow, who cares? Like all good languages, they're both incorporating. Each one makes an advance, the other one puts it in. True. Yeah, you know, both have their point, features, so, yes.
3: It's, Pi, it's PyTorch. I'm sorry, I I said the wrong thing. They're learning PyTorch, not TensorFlow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, is, so PyTorch. Is learning PyTorch. <laughs> yeah. TensorFlow is really more last year than this year.
1: No, Looking I would, not, I oh, would disagree. I would disagree. OK.
0: It's all about Jax
2: now, right?
1: <laughs> at some
0: level. The, the, I say PyTorch
1: is more good for research and implementation. TensorFlow is very convenient in the terms of production, like especially the ecosystem that they have developed now, like TensorFlow probability, TensorFlow data sets, TensorFlow hub. That whole ecosystem is very supportive for you know doing things very quickly. So that's one advantage of TensorFlow. Otherwise, both are equal
0: although PyTorch is rapidly putting a yeah. whole set of basic machine learning functions and they're copying lots of <laughs> that functionality. Yes. So I, again, I think on the short term, the five-year time frame, TensorFlow and PyTorch are both actively evolving and looking really similar. Longer term, sure, something will take over with different architectures. I mean, we're mostly not writing Fortran or COBOL um, <laughs> or yeah. even C or even C++, Right, so fine, they evolve, but it's the concepts haven't changed that yes. much. I still miss Turbo Pascal. <laughs> That's what I programmed. <laughs> the oh my God. God. Fortran.
3: <laughs> but Fortran. I learned Fortran. I'm, the, I'm yes. old enough to have learned Fortran. Yes. I wrote yes. my
0: thesis in Fortran, but I got to say Python is so much nicer.
1: It is. I
0: it's just a it better, C++. there's been improvements in designing yes. languages. Yes. So they're yes. just better designed now than they were 20 years ago. Yeah.
3: Nothing like a bumbling podcast uh, host to throw around buzzwords incorrectly. TensorFlow, PyTorch. ah, All the same. Throwing people off. All right. Well, uh, so uh, other topics that the students were learning about, or uh, and I think that we should focus mostly on probably, are regularization and uh, optimization, um, and not necessarily in that order. So, Lyle, actually, one of the things that you uh, suggested that we talk about is the relationship between optimization and regularization. Um, so I want to ask you what, what that relationship is.
0: The, the thing that I'm currently fascinated by is the fact that the way that people build neural nets is they make them too big, too complicated, and then they optimize them by some version of gradient descent, and the optimization process of doing the gradient descent magically, which is to say there's lots of cool math, magic, same thing, magic math for me, I can't tell the difference, magically converges to good optima and then you only partially converge, which regularizes and it converges to nice flat minima if you do it well, which regularizes. So the optimization scheme we're using is in fact regularizing. If somebody said, hey, I can use a quantum computer, I can find the true global optimum of your neural net. I can solve the NP-hard problem quickly. First, I'd be skeptical. But then I would say, God, that's terrible. The worst thing you could ever do is find the global optimum, the thing you've overfit the data beyond all possible things there. Turn off the quantum computer and go back and do gradient descent because it gives me nice optima.
3: Magic. Do you guys agree with that?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think this is one of the biggest
2: things that we've learned from a statistics perspective in deep learning is, you know, classical statistics says if you have many, many more parameters than data points, you're going to be in big trouble because you'll overfit to the data and you won't be able to generalize to new health data, right? But if you analyze, like like now mathematicians have have worked out like why this is not having in this, happening in certain overparameterized systems. We also have a paper on this topic um, where we showed that if you train uh, even simple linear deep networks and also nonlinear deep networks on uh on some data set, they learn the most important structure in the data first and then learn less important structure in the data later. And learning the most important structure helps you generalize. So if, for example, if you stop early a little bit and go don't go down the rabbit hole of the deepest minimum, you will learn the most important structure and you'll generalize well. And um you know, people have been working on, on, on multiple areas. Like the other thing is beneficial regularization, right? You have that proverbial picture where if you imagine your head, a whole bunch of points that all come from approximately a straight line plus noise and you fit a higher order polynomial to those points that goes through every single point, um, it'll, it'll oscillate wildly around the points at intermediate positions and you'll overfit. It turns out if you have a very, very high degree polynomial, but you start from zero weights and you do gradient descent to do the fitting, the polynomial will get wigglier and wigglier until it goes through all the points and the wiggles won't grow beyond that so the overfitting is beneficial if you do gradient descent starting from small weights in the high degree polynomial you'll get beneficial overfitting in the sense that you'll interpolate the data you'll go through every training point get zero training error but in between the training points you won't wiggle as much as you think you would so that in a nutshell is the basic idea if you do gradient descent from small weights you won't learn that wiggly of a function and you'll generalize in between data points. I think that's the simplest way to explain the intuition. Magic, I love
4: it.
1: (laughs) Yes, it is magic. And I would say like, whether it is optimization and regularization, starting with the simpler models is always better rather than going to the complex networks directly.
0: So, You mean, certainly when I teach applied sense, always fit a linear model first, see how well it does. Yes. It's for the students, students, yes. For the students to distinguish a a process, you should always fit a simple linear model and see how well it does. Often it's incredibly hard to beat the baseline of a decently regularized linear or logistic regression. Absolutely what Anita says. And oddly enough, if you're doing a neural net, then usually the simple neural nets are not as good as the complex ones with, sorry, as magic gradient descent applied.
3: By the way, the last time, the last... Episode of a NeuroMatch uh, panel like this, I threw out the word magic and got excoriated by the <laughs> panelists because, you know, real magic's not real. But I know what you guys mean, so I'm not gonna uh, I'm not gonna push back but, at all. But
0: Paul, did you carefully say that magic is the same as
3: mathematics? You missed the equivalence <laughs> class <laughs> no, that defines. No, I called mathematics sterile. In fact, so that was fun. Oh, but- oh,
1: oh, oh <laughs> No, no, no. no, no not
3: that, not. But it wasn't, <laughs> But it is. Mathematics, mathematics is magic. sterile. No. <laughs>
1: Not, Not in a bad the way.
3: Hey, I'm sterile, and I paid for it.
0: <laughs> 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 I doubt you're truly sterile with a little bit of biology. If you don't have lots of bacteria growing in you, you're probably a yeah. zombie. By
2: association, that, a... that means you're magic, Paul. <laughs> uh,
3: <laughs> sterile and magic, yeah. <laughs> a little, yeah. little oversharing for everybody. Uh, so, but. So so so, so Syria, you start with uh, small weights you, you know you do the gradient descent do we even need to regularize or because the the initial uh, idea of regularization or the the initial need for it uh, was to not overfit um yeah. but what you're saying is um with with a big enough model essentially with enough parameters you'll and if you start with uh, low initial weights you're not going to overfit so in that case do we even need to regularize
2: Yeah so you know Sometimes no, actually, right? Like um, what, this, what this theory tells you is if you don't regularize at all, you still won't wildly overfit. You can, in principle, do better with some regularization. And we actually have another paper on a theory of high-dimensional regression where we show that if you don't regularize, you don't do that bad. But if you regularize optimally, you do better, right? In practice, uh, data sets won't always obey all the theoretical conditions you impose on your model data to prove your theorems. So in practice, you always got to cross-validate and tune hyperparameters, including regularization parameters. And you just pick in practice uh, the level of regularization that helps you best perform on your test set and then eventually validate uh, or best perform on your validation set and then eventually test on a test set. So I I think it's always a good idea to regularize. But I think what the theory tells us is why you don't do that bad if you don't regularize. And this is really like a conceptual insight that has... Taken the field of statistics by storm, right? There are, there are card-carrying statistical theorists theorizing about this now, and they're kind of wringing their hands, saying, "Why are the statistics textbooks written in such a way that suggests that this is impossible?" Right? So that the statistics textbook have to be rewritten, right? Oftentimes, people say deep learning is just, "Oh, we just got like a Newton, an, a, a, an algorithm that goes back to the time of Newton, the chain rule, i.e., backprop, and we marry it with GPUs." And, out, and so there's no new conceptual advances in deep learning. I beg to defer, there are lots of conceptual advances coming out of the field, which I, I think are really exciting.
0: I completely agree with Sri and I'm still struck by the contrast between the really cool math, which is you know just giving really nice insights, and the fact that when I talk to people in industry, they spend all their GPU time doing optimization of trying to find, tune the hyperparameters and choose the geometry and choose architecture. There's just an enormous empiricism which drives almost all the application work in spite of the fact that the theory work is, is gorgeous and making really nice progress.
2: Yeah, I, I don't think, so yeah, what theory hasn't given us yet, it's not powerful enough to give us yet, Is the rational theory guided design of hyperparameter choices in realistic data settings that matter to industry? We don't have that yet. But if you go back to like the old ages when we had steam engines, right? We had like steam engines before we understood the laws of thermodynamics. And so we had to work really hard to sort out the laws of thermodynamics. And then we got the Carnot cycle, the most energy efficient steam engine, and so forth. And then eventually a deeper understanding of the science led to better engineering. But more often than not, engineering leads the science, the science catches up. But then once the science catches up, we can work in synergy and get a rational theory of design, right? Um, But, you know, it remains to be seen whether, you know, steam engines are much simpler than, you know, networks that solve alpha or solve. And goers, it took
0: exactly. a good a hundred years before it took the, a good 100 years I again, the thermodynamics exactly. theory was actually useful. I mean, now it's useful, right? It's exactly, something we teach exactly. all undergraduates in chemical engineering. I've taught thermodynamics. It's exactly. actually a very applied subject right now, in spite of being based on this, you know, again, very elegant math.
2: Exactly. So it may take time for the science of deep learning to catch up to the engineering of deep learning. It could be like decades, right?
0: Uh One of the things that I found surprising when I tried building my predecessor to this course, I took a standard rules like, how fast should the learning rate be? Should you, anneal, slow down with the square to the iterations, for example, which seems like the right theory, and it turns out that there's lots of nice theoretical papers, and then you try and actually make up a homework assignment, and then it's very frustrating because the darn simple, clean homework assignment actually contradicts. The very elegant theory that says that, of course, pick your favorite scaling—is it linear in iterations? Is it square root of iterations? Whatever it is, whatever it is, it's easy to—it's—it's it's embarrassingly easy to find counterexamples, and almost harder to find ones that actually support yeah. the theory. For but then many I would be fairly simple. Yeah, just to state that more precisely, then I—I I mean, you can't
2: counteract a correct theorem because it's correct. Of course, but what yeah. I would say is like. What is it about the structure of the real world problem that you're solving that violates the assumptions yeah. of the theorem, right? And, and that's where I think like theorists have to make assumptions to make progress. And then the question is like how relevant are your assumptions, right? And, and 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 then, you know that's the cycle between theory and experiment, right? When you find a situation where the theory doesn't apply because the data has a different assumption, can we generalize the theory? I think that's an incredibly exciting interplay. And so you know I spent time at Facebook also, and I talked to a lot of people, um, industry practitioners there at Facebook AI research. And I love hearing all the weird puzzles that they see because it's it's just fun to, and then you try to think, well, why is that happening? And then you try to come up with a simple situation where where you can explain why that's happening. Um, but then you have to iterate. You have to talk to them and say, hey, this is why I think that's happening. And then they try to poke holes. And, and so it's, it's a lot like neuroscience, to be honest. Like the same way I talk to experimental neuroscientists when I try to understand how a biological system is working, I, I feel like I talk the same way to engineers when I try to figure out how an artificial system is working.
0: Because computer science and biology broadly are the two sciences that deal with complexity in a way that you actually have some chance of understanding it. I mean, no. history also does, but they're not going to be a science. You can't run the same experiments you can in history that you can in neuroscience or computer science. You can not do causal
2: perturbations of history.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Unless we're all within a simulation and we're one of them, but yeah, okay.
4: Right. Yeah.
3: So, I had, there's lots of different ways we could go right now. Um, here, I'll, I'll go this way. So, I had uh, Sanjeev Arora on uh, my podcast a while back, and he says we need to discard uh, the notion of or, or stop talking about optimization. It's the wrong framework and focus more on the learning trajectories. Um, Because the the trajectory, and and I know Surya, you've done work on this as well, um, with the, with the deep linear networks that, um, and I've had other people on who, who who have as well, that, uh, we, we should stop thinking about, uh, great, like landscapes, error landscapes, optimization landscapes, uh, because that will lead us astray because it all depends on the, the trajectory that the learning algorithm, uh, takes you. I was going to say along that landscape, but then that's bringing us back into thinking about the landscape. Which is a good point
0: of how hard it is to let go of it, (laughs) right? Right. (laughs) Right? Uh, This either or thing is really hard way to pose it as opposed to, I mean, in some sense, Sanjeev and and Surya are saying the same thing, that trajectories matter. To try and say, well, throw out the landscape. What is a trajectory in if it's not in a landscape? Hello? So. Yes. Plus, plus, I think for...
2: Yeah. So a simple interpretation of that is like, yeah, there is the landscape. It there. It's there, but the trajectories may not explore the landscape in an unbiased manner, and many parts of the landscape may be completely irrelevant and unreachable. Yeah. So what really matters at the end of the day is the properties of the trajectories and what parts of the landscape they explore, and that I think is a fairly uncontroversial statement. Um, because because what the trajectories explore is what you see in practice, right? So, so then we have to think about, it's the analog in physics between equilibrium physics and non-equilibrium physics, right? In equilibrium physics, you assume that the system settles into some Boltzmann distribution over the set of all possible states where the probability of the state is E to the minus energy of the, in the landscape. In non-equilibrium, you could be more kinetically constrained, right? You may not settle into equilibrium, you may be constrained by the, your initialization and so forth. So I, I think multiple fields of discipline have have come into this sort of landscape as equilibrium and trajectory as non-equilibrium, and in many situations, the non-equilibrium that matters. I, I completely agree with Sanjeev, and, and I, I actually don't think anyone could disagree. <laughs> I'll throw that out there.
0: <laughs> it's all true. I, I mean, the economics back in the 1920s, uh-huh. John Maynard Keynes famously attacked equilibrium economics uh-huh. by saying, in the long run, we're all dead. When you achieve yeah, equilibrium, exactly. yes. it's all over. That's not an it- fine. There's a, there's an attractor point. Yeah, we yeah. know what the attractor is, and yes. the equilibrium is a boring one. Yeah. <laughs> so,
2: so yeah, in my biophysics class, I like to say that in biology, equilibrium is also death. Right? Like, right? We're fundamentally non-equilibrium. Right? We're always consuming energy, and we're violating the second law of thermodynamics at least you know, if you don't account for the fact that you're consuming energy, right? So, yeah.
0: So that said, I I want to go back for the students and say, on the other hand, even though the full landscape's irrelevant, to think of things as optimization is the right way. And I'm the, the engineer, I think, the token real engineer here. The right way to think about things is what's your loss function? What are you trying to find? What are you trying to minimize or maximize? And so in some sense, Forgetting the, the the landscape question, all of deep learning is optimizing something. And what engineers do if they're smart is think about what am I really trying to optimize? What's the loss function? What goes in goes out? And the trajectory is some way to get to that loss function you're minimizing. So I still think thinking in terms of optimization as a problem specification, which is very different from this question of will we explore the whole landscape? Of course not. But the problem of this is the function I would like to make small is a very important engineering thing. And I think there's been a huge progress in the last 20 years from ad hoc optimization schemes, many things like support vector machines started by talking about weird large margin and eventually said, oh, look, it's just a loss function we're minimizing, however you get there. And so I think it is is progress to think about it.
2: I can tie this in a very concrete way back to the generalization problem, right? So let's talk about like uh, the landscape over the set of say degree 50 polynomials that's set up by trying to minimize the squared error to fitting 10 points that are near a line, okay? There's a huge space of degree 50 polynomials that exactly go through all the 10 points. If I pick a random polynomial from that huge space of zero error configurations in the landscape, I'll get an extremely wiggly polynomial. But if I start from a polynomial with zero, all 50 coefficients are zero and I do gradient descent, I'll end up with a polynomial that's not that wiggly. So I'll end up at a very special point, a very special restricted non-wiggly point in that landscape, whereas the entire landscape is dominated mostly by wiggly points or wiggly polynomials. So So basically because the trajectories are limited, we don't get overfitting,
0: right? And to tie that back I mean, to formally I mean, to an optimization you're optimizing yeah. not just fitting but fitting plus minimal wiggliness which is it's what we call correct. regularization, oh, regularization. You know, but we're not putting we're not putting that in as an explicit term in the cost function but we right? are putting it that in, in as an engineering criteria we're saying what we want is something that fits the points and is minimally wiggly so it's not an yes. explicit yeah. regularization yes. It's it's implicit. Yeah. But 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 note that what you've done, again, I'm talking not to you because you know this, I'm talking to the students. Yeah. That what you've done cleverly is saying what I really care about is something that fits the data well and minimizes the wiggles. And that is something that you, as a mathematically gifted person, will say, and you can actually measure how wiggly they are and quantify how good a job you do in terms of minimizing the wiggliness. And that's precisely something which is called regularization or shrinkage or smoothing or any of these things are all doing the same thing. They're minimizing wiggliness. So you're not putting it as a a penalized something. You're doing it through search. But note, uh, I want the students to know, again, you know this. I want them to note that what Surya is doing is really thinking very clearly what his true loss function is which is not just fitting the data, because there's an infinite number of ways to do that. It's that plus some wiggliness penalty, and that's really what you're optimizing by your search. Exactly,
3: Amita. Yes. I want to. I want us to hear from you as well. What do you think about all this?
1: Uh, I would agree with uh, basically Surya and live both, although they have posing points. I think the trajectory is important because. Uh, trajectory decides, especially like since I'm working more in the area of reinforcement learning there, if I am starting up with the agent and if I do not have the right trajectory, I can end up with the agent who doesn't know anything. And yet at the same time, the landscape is important because unless I define my reward function properly, I'm not going to reach any goal. So I cannot say one is more important than the other. For me, both are important.
3: So but so reinforcement learning is all about, um, well, one of the things it's all about is that when you take action in the world, it changes the world. So I have a naive uh, question. It's good to be naive because you can ask questions like this. Uh, so um, thinking about the learning trajectories and landscapes, uh, does reinforcement learning or a different setting imply that a learning trajectory could actually uh, change the landscape? So usually you think of there is a static landscape and then you're optimizing to, to minima. But uh, could the trajectory, um, and I, I, I thought of this as well, Surya, when you were talking, uh, you know, starting, starting with the space of possible uh, sets of 50 polynomials that you could start with, um, you know, that sort of thing, or reinforcement learning, and Amita, uh, you know, I'm asking you, you know, can, le- can in the learning trajectory create a dynamic landscape, essentially?
1: It's an interesting idea, and I think it can. We just need to, you know, like, for example, when we talk about auto RL, we are kind of doing that only, where we are having a dynamical landscape, and that is a dynamical reward function, which is going to be updated as the model is running, as the agent is evolving, and seeing the world. So it is an interesting idea, and I think definitely it is possible. I would say that. I
0: Anyone think else, you can... You can phrase it either way. So imagine searching over the space of different neural net architectures. Yes. You can either say that each time you change the architecture, you add in more hidden nodes, of course you change the landscape, or you can go meta and say, oh, it's just searching a bigger space. The landscape includes all the architectural choices. I think reinforcement learning makes this feel a little bit deeper And it's still very much the same thing that you say, am I changing the world or is my model of the world so big that includes everything in terms of the search space? They're probably both useful. I think mostly we tend to think of, at least I tend to think of things in terms of here's a huge search space, including all architectures and all agent structures and everything I could ever build. It's just a really, 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 really big search space. And now we need to find the right trajectory in it. But I guess you could instead say, okay, I want to picture a whole bunch of smaller search spaces and then tweak the hyperparameters to find a nice world that has nice trajectories. And people do that sometimes. I right? think sometimes there's a whole, well, going back for decades, continuation theory says, start with an easy problem you know how to solve and have some hyperparameter, you gradually tweak it, it makes it into a really, really hard problem. So you manipulate the world from a simple approximation to the world continuously to a complex one in order to be able to find the solution, the complex one. So that's a classic optimization trick that explicitly says, "I will change the world from the one I know how to solve smoothly to the one I don't know how to solve." That's not used very much in deep learning.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think our, our, I mean, I think RL theory is incredibly fascinating, and people are making, you know, interesting progress on on RL theory in in, in simple settings. And you know, RL theory has its own kind of version of convergence proofs to the best value, like, you know, oftentimes in RL, you want to find the val- optimal value function or optimal policy. And you have various algorithms that you can show in the space of policies or contraction mappings, like, uh, you know, you have policy updates and iterations and so forth, and, you know, Bellman updates and so forth. And you can show that in the space of policies, you're contracting, and then you're these updates are contracting, so you converge to a particular policy, and then you can show that there's no policy that's better. So I think that's super cool but they rely on like a complete model of the environment, like all this, and, and these proofs break down when you don't have complete knowledge of the environment, when you have to approximate it, when you have an, yeah. And, and so I think there's a lot of interesting work for theory to be done there. Um, yeah, it, I think it's, it's much harder than the theory that's being done when you have an optimization problem with fixed set of, with a fixed architecture and you're trying to understand trajectories and gradient design, it's much harder. Um, because of temporal dependencies and so forth, but there's really, yeah, it's super exciting. Like, you know, for students, like, you know, I I don't follow this field except from afar. But you know, the people like Sham Kakade, Eldad Hazan, my colleague Tengu Ma at Stanford, like, they've done really cool theory papers on 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 this stuff. Um, and there's many more that I'm leaving out for sure. All
3: right, well, I have I have two more topics for us, and then we can finish up because the hour is flying by. One. Uh, regularization. So, dropout um, is, you know, was helpful for the deep learning revolution in 2012 with uh, AlexNet, And dropout was uh, at least inspired by stochasticity in the brain. And that, you know, so neurons don't fire reliably. Uh, So, the idea, at least partial idea, was that uh, sometimes if a neuron doesn't fire, it's like a unit when it's not active. So, the idea of dropout is you turn off usually half the units uh, on the forward pass and also on the backward pass when they're being updated through through uh, back propagation. Uh, so two questions, um, you know, thinking about the relationship between optimization and regularization. Uh, does the brain have a built-in regular regularization uh, mechanism? B- because there are other, you know, another way to regularize in deep nets is to just inject Stochasticity, which is the same thing you know the same idea as as firing neurons i would basically I would be amiss if we didn't try to talk a, a little bit about uh, the way that brains do deep learning, and I'm wondering where regularization fits in in that story
2: yeah it's a good it's a good question I mean yes short answers we don't know <laughs> that's, that's sure. always that's the problem is that's always <laughs> that, the answer yeah. it's about the brain but that's true we yeah. can still speculate we can still speculate like i i can give you my intuition i mean yeah so so synapses are unreliable like i think drop connect is a little bit better of a model than drop yeah. drop out where you yeah. where you randomly drop synapses so yeah synapses have regular probabilities of failure and and um they're relatively high, like twenty percent, thirty percent chances of failure of transmission. So I think Drop Connect is a good model for what the brain is doing, and it's you know if it plays a regular if it plays a regularization role in artificial networks, there's no reason to believe it doesn't play a regularization role in the brain. Um, how the brain does backprop, or whether it does
3: backprop—well, that's well, we're not getting into that.
2: Well, yeah. Yeah. we cannot. Yeah. We we yeah. That's not. Uh, it's I have more friends in the field, yeah. so I don't, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, they're doing interesting work, but I think there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of interesting questions there. Um, but yeah, how it's does the how the, noise,
0: the noise has to be doing some sort of regularization, but I've never seen any clean analyses of yeah. how that works. We but, have, but I guess,
2: mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, so I, I'm collaborating with um, Mark Schnitzer at Stanford who has amazing microscopes that record thousands of neurons across 10 brain regions and we're observing like neurons coming in and out of visual representations over time so these long time fluctuations in the nature of representations in the brain so how the heck how the heck can you decode visual stimuli if your brain's representations are changing over days well what we found is that the short time fluctuations like over you know seconds what during the presentation of a single stimulus their correlational structure is closely related to the long-time fluctuations uh, over days. So if you learn decoders that take into account and optimally deal with the short-time fluctuations, they'll be robust to long-time fluctuations. So i.e. their decoding capacity will be stable over days if they have high performance in a single day. So this connection between two disparate timescales of seconds and days It implicitly solves the problem of maintaining the robustness of perception in the face of high variability of neural orchestrations across days. So um, we were, yeah, you could do mathematical analysis to show that what I said is you can formalize that and so show that it's true. So I think even though there's a lot of variability in the brain, what we really have to do is measure many neurons at once and look for dimensions in firing rate space that are actually stable. And they exist. Despite single neuron variability, so I think uh, it's we should be careful to overinterpret how we think the brain works from looking at individual neurons and their behavior.
3: Any other thoughts on the? You know, so Lyle, you had started off by saying that regularization is kind of built in if you um, optimize slowly through stochastic gradient descent, and so I, I don't need to harp on this point, but I keep coming back to the idea: how important is? Explicit regularization when it could be done implicitly uh, in the way that you through the learning algorithm and the way that you you train your model.
0: We don't really expect the brain to have a little L two and L one penalty built into the loss function, right? So it's got to be sort of implicit in there. And I, I, it's clear that we do do generalization in brains, and that it has a distributed representation. And I still don't know in detail. Apart. I mean, the, sure, there's noise, there's these sort of things that you talked about, but exactly how that causes a robust, distributed, stable representation. Well, there, there's so many different ways to do it. To me, but it certainly is regularization. Yeah. Or at least I mean, implicit. Just,
3: our models are growing and growing and growing. And it could be that, uh, you know, if we are vastly, vastly over-parameterized, then we don't need explicit regularization. And you guys know about this stuff. I don't. This is why I get to talk naively about it. By
2: the way, there might be an L one penalty that on synapses that could be really easy because, like, a, a synapse that's stronger has to be—it turned out to be bigger uh, in size—and right. you know the brain is super packed. It's an incredible like, like if you think real estate in SF is expensive, real estate <laughs> and the brain is expensive, right? So uh, you know it's super packed. So a bigger synapse takes up more space, and and, and so there could be like growth limitations that implicitly implement an L one regularization on the size of the synapse and therefore the strength so i think that part's easy it's like how do you do credit assignment across multiple layers like when i teach this to my students i say the following unsolved problem is unsolved like if you state it dramatically let's say you're you're a tennis player right you're learning to play tennis you hit the ball wrong you see that the ball went in the wrong direction you get your visual feedback and visual coordinates like you know a second later hundreds of milliseconds later you have to correct some synapses in your motor system you have like a you have trillions of synapses in your brain. Which one screwed up? How does the brain figure that out? Like, we have no clue how that works, right? It, like not, not even the foggiest theoretical idea of what could solve that problem. Backpropagation is the only game in town in, in machine learning. Um, but it's not obvious that that's what the game is that the brain plays, right? So anyways. It's...
4: Unless the biological computer can do the gradients very fastly, then we can think of.
0: But it clearly yeah. Yeah. has other methods of different spatial things. You look at the dopamine coverage. Yeah, you know, there's there's clearly lots of other mechanisms in the brain that we yeah. don't have anything There to are yeah, in so our people, artificial. So,
2: oh, another way I phrase it for my students is like like so there's biologically plausible mechanisms of a measure like and learning, dopamine-based learning, and, and all but if you think about the set of rules for which learning rules for which you can make money off of, and the set of learning rules that are biologically plausible, at least under current consensus. The intersection of those two is empty, right? Which I mean to say is no biologically plausible learning rule works, right? Um, so that's another big open question. You're
3: going well. to rile up some people. I said we weren't going to talk about backprops, so I'm going to <laughs> squeeze this back out of there. So Amito, uh, uh, we you know we started talking about Asimov's uh, laws and um, something, a different kind of law is uh, in physics, you know, natural laws, and the the whole goal is to find uh in deep learning theory or what are what are the laws what are the laws of optimization regularization et cetera? but is that newer, newer physics seems to be less attached to laws and as we all know biology uh and deep learning nets with their massive uh amounts of parameters is you know they're they're messy and complex do we need laws uh is that a, a desirable thing or do we need other principles to account for how to understand deep learning networks?
4: Well, out what I would, this is again my presumption and this is what I think about it. So I feel we cannot, uh, like, there are certain cases, certain scenarios, certain applications where we can have explicit laws. But some laws are inherent, natural part of, you know, such a multiple, such a vast chaotic system. Because if you talk about neural networks itself, There is a lot means like, for example, again, going back to reinforcement learning, if I go, randomness plays a very important role in learning there. So, you know, that chaos, again, I guess, has some sort of a natural convergence, which by itself uh, have some form of loss. Definitely, it needs to be explored. And I haven't done any work on that area to give you any specific uh, answer about it. But that is what I think. Maybe Lyle or Surya can add to it if they have some experience about it. But, yeah. That is what
0: I would say. I think there are lots of heuristics that are useful for guidance, and a number of them come from theory. And as Surya repeatedly pointed out, as I would say, never trust the mathematician, read the <laughs> fine print. But <laughs> if all the preconditions are true, then the theory gives you clear guidance. In the real world, that law, that mathematical rule becomes a heuristic because you violated the assumptions. And I think part of what we're building up in deep learning is a set of heuristics,
4: heuristics. Drop
0: out with dropping out half of them seems to work pretty well. It's not something that's super worth fine tuning.
4: Yeah, um, that's a nice way to put it.
0: So we've got a bunch of heuristics, all of which in some limiting case have some very strong math, but we don't live in that limiting case. I've never seen an infinite data set. I've never seen infinite compute power. These are all things that my mathematician friends seem to like, but I can't seem to get a hold of them. I'm like, Where is that infinitely large computer? I just did you know, that. that. Even a little Turing machine would be fine. I don't want a big one, you know? Um, but I think the heuristics really are nice. And the beauty of having things from math is they often give us starting points for heuristics.
3: Mm. Yes. Surya, any, anything to add before?
2: I'd like to end on an optimistic note. I believe that eventually, like 50 years from now, we'll have kind of a unified theory of how intelligent behavior emerges from distributed nonlinear systems that will apply to biology and artificial intelligence alike. Now, there's an oft-quoted trope that's saying that we shouldn't look to biology to develop AI, which is like you know airplanes versus birds, right? It would be folly to have an airplane that flaps its wings like a bird, Right. But if you look at the laws of aerodynamics, right, like there's two problems that need to be solved in flight. There's lift and there's thrust. Airplanes and birds solve those two problems in completely different, solve the problem of thrust in completely different ways, right? Flapping wings versus jet engines. But the problem of lift is solved in exactly the same way, an aerodynamic wing shape that creates low, high pressure on the bottom, low pressure on the top. So just like that, and woe unto any flying object that violates the laws of aerodynamics. So in the same way, just as aerodynamics governs both the dynamics of birds and, and, and planes, I think there'll be laws that govern distributed emergence of of intelligence, and they'll apply to both machines and humans. And they, they might solve it in different ways. Some of the problems in different ways, some of the problems in the same way. And, and I hope that, like, you know, before I die, we'll see the glimpses of the beginnings of such a unified theory.
3: That's it, Neuromatch students. Get on it before Syria dies. So, <laughs> Amita Lyle Soria, thanks. I know Amita, your alarm went off, which means it's time for us to go. So, thanks, guys, for joining me. Sorry, it went by so fast.
4: Thank awesome. you. Awesome. Thank you. It, it was, was, was nice. very fun. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Bye.
3: thanks. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side, but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time. The stair-